G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast, our uh, weekly off-season edition. Well, for racing uh, aficionados, Spring Carnival almost at an end. Uh, a bit of a lull between major sporting events in these parts. Uh, we've got the AFL Draft coming up in a couple of weeks, the release of the fixture... Uh, T20 Cricket World Cups going on, of course. Still got their, a big Ashes series to come. Plenty going on in the world. Plenty to talk about. As I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How goes it, Finey? Yeah, it goes well. I mean, I'm a little bit EPL obsessed at the moment because West Ham are certainly performing better than anybody could have imagined, knocking off Liverpool, third at the international break. So... That's kept me satisfied. Uh, I've been watching a bit of the EPL. I did watch the Manchester Derby last weekend. Uh, boy, that was a, a um, uh, what's the word, embarrassing lesson for United. Only 2-0 in the finish. But uh, I watched most of the second half and uh, United couldn't get, uh, couldn't get their, I was going to say hands on the ball, couldn't get their feet. <laughs> On the ball, boy, City are a, a pretty good team and uh, just some great quality soccer in the EPL these days. And well done, the, the Hammers. Good to see some uh, other sides having a bit of the glory. And I'll tell you what, Finey, you'll always get a bit of the glory when you head down to a certain establishment for the best hamburger in town. Did you say a bit of glory or a bite of the glory? Because you get the best bite in town and... Yeah, it is glorious. Boy, that burger is well, well, well appreciated by a hungry feeder like myself. You go in there and you expect a really good quality Aussie burger, and that's exactly what you get. The beef patty, it's all beef, and the vegetables are crisp and delicious and fresh, and all in all, it's an absolute pleasure. Nothing better than a great burger when the appetite's Right to go. And that's what happens at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Love it. Absolutely love Andrew's Burgers. Andrew's Hamburgers. In fact, uh, talking to a good friend yesterday who'd uh, just sauntered down there for a bite herself and uh, very, very impressed. In fact, she wasn't even aware of our connection with that establishment fighting and was singing its praises even without prompting. And now she knows we're connected. She is going to be feasting on the morning, noon and night. No, I hope she's not because um, she'll <laughs> stack on a bit if she does. Uh, never mind. It is a great bite. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrew's Hamburgers, the best hamburger in town. All right, we've got plenty of news to talk about. We've got uh, the best of music and movies in our vinyl and video segment. We've got some great footy flashbacks and, of course, the rant off. Let's get into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Plenty of off-season news going on. Of course, COVID uh, has been inextricably linked to most football discussions for a couple of years now. And that continues. We'll probably continue into a third year and uh, some big news just over the last 24 hours or so. And that is a Carlton player, key defender, Liam Jones, having some vaccine hesitancy. He is uh, locked in discussions with the club, but so far reluctant to be vaccinated. And under the new AFL mandate, that, of course, means he will be ineligible to play or even train with the club when he is scheduled to return to training on December the 6th. Uh, that's not the only COVID news. Uh, young Hawthorne player Finn McGuinness, of course, son of Premiership defender Scott McGuinness, 
He's been diagnosed with COVID, as has a member of Carlton's AFLW program, although we're not sure who that is, even if that's a player, in fact. But COVID still rearing its ugly head in a football context. Uh, the Liam Jones one, interesting. Of course, we saw Adelaide AFLW player uh, Danny Van Hagen um, put on the uh, inoperative list for her reluctance to be vaccinated. Will Jones follow suit? It's a tricky one for clubs, Finey, because uh, they don't want to infringe on people's rights, but there's a very clear mandate in place. And uh, I'd say unless Liam Jones gets the jab, uh, there will be no job for him next season. Well, that's pretty well a given. And there is a timeline for him and Carlton can put him on sort of a long-term injured list and there will be time for him to possibly do his research, maybe be made more comfortable with the idea of getting vaccinated. He said that he's not an anti-vaxxer. He just has some personal hesitation and there is a bit of time for him, of course, to overcome that before the season starts. And I guess Carlton and friends and family will be working along with him to see whether or not he can be made more comfortable to become vaccinated. But what has become a story within a story, of course, is the fact that Carlton made it very clear that for his own well-being and mental health issues that they demanded virtually, even though it was leaked that Carlton had a player that was not vaccinated and would not be vaccinated, they said that it would be irresponsible of any media person to name that player. And Sam McClure put his hand up and became that person and named Liam Jones. What did you make of that? Yeah, well, it's uh, polarised people. I've got to say, in this instance, I mean, I'm, I'm often pretty down on the media for uh, going gung-ho on those things, but uh, I'm actually in Sam McClure's corner on this one because I think unlike issues with, say, drugs or alcohol, um, there's not necessarily, I don't think, any pressing uh, medical or confidentiality reasons to withhold that name. I mean, a member of the public who reveals themselves to be anti-vax, uh, we have no hesitation in naming them. Um, I'm, you know, like a lot of people, I'm very strong on the need for everyone to be vaccinated, not just for their own well-being, but for the well-being of those around them. And I think, you know, look, I mean, what what's the vaccination rate now in Australia? It's up around 80%. Um, I, I don't personally understand what the hesitancy is if we've seen, and it's been proven, not only how many people have been getting the vaccination with uh, very minimal side effects, but the effectiveness that uh, has been shown in terms of stopping the further spread of the virus. So um, I think that is a valid uh, news revelation from Sam, and I'm on his side. What do you think? Well, I think it was inevitable that Liam Jones' name would come out. So whilst I don't believe, and I really feel that, you know, Sam McClure was the journalist who named him. I don't think, from what I could gather, he did it uh, because there was a clamour to be the first to do so. He simply took the position that this is a football issue and part of the issue is the player and the football public and the general public that follow football are in, uh, want to know who that player is. And in those circumstances, I tend to sit alongside you here, Rowan, and say that it's a football issue. It was going to make, it was going to surface, and I have no problems with the journalist that was first to name him. It happened to be Sam McClure. So be it. Well, another issue that's emerged over the past week, which has caused uh, plenty of de vigorous debate, is uh, about skin folds, the old measure of uh, footballers' fitness or otherwise when they return from any sort of break. And uh, it emerges that um, potential draftees, they're going to scrap skinfold tests because 
they're worried about uh, the issues of um, body image and and uh, body fat shaming or, or whatever you care to call it with young players. Um, it's certainly body shaming is certainly an issue with women, particularly for understandable reasons, because they've always been identified so strongly uh, through history with their physical appearance. Um, but it, it's caused a real backlash, particularly from uh, former AFL, VFL players who, you know, among whom the general feeling seems to be, what are you talking about? I mean, clubs are entitled to uh, check on the relative fitness and condition of their players. Um, they're going to have skinfold tests when they get drafted by AFL clubs anyway. So what's the big deal about having them before they're drafted? Um, I've been a little bit taken aback by the strength of that reaction. And it's interesting to me that the only sort of professional um, footballer support I've seen for the initiative came uh, yesterday. I saw on Twitter from Darcy Vessio, the Carlton player, and uh, she's a big rap for it. And no surprise to me that that support came from a woman. And I think, uh, you know, girls and women have put up with this stuff for so long. And, uh, you know, there's so many well-documented cases of... Um, women and girls really struggling because of this issue. So, uh, you know, it, it just, it's sort of bound up with that general gender uh, identification really. And uh, it, it's just seems to me a bit of a throwback to the thing about, you know, if you're a prospective AFL footballer, you've got to do it tough and you've got to, you know, be embarrassed and humiliated occasionally and, and whatever, and I, I don't get me wrong. I, I sort of understand them thinking that because they all went through it, and they probably copped a bit of a ribbing when their skin folds were up. But I think we we learn, we live, and we learn, and we uh, we move with the times. And I think uh, if it can be documented well enough that people can really suffer mentally through that sort of negative uh, self image, uh, I don't see an issue with scrapping it. I mean, how do you feel about this one? Why is skinfold measurements relevant is the question I'm asking. I, I thought we had come to a, an understanding that there are different body types that play the game and included in those body types are some players that aren't pencil, you know, read thin and they have some, maybe some body fat. If those players pass all the markers of... Um, time trials and, and endurance and, of course, most importantly, play the game well, I've always wondered what the obsession with skinfold tests are and whether players have been excluded. I think famously Greg Williams, in his first coming at Carlton, when he got rejected by that club, was rejected on the basis of his body shape. Um, I think of some current AFL players who might not necessarily be at the top of the list, but they've got no problems getting a game, nor should they. Maybe a, a Cameron Zerha doesn't seem to me to be the, you know, leanest of footballers, but by Joves, he plays the game well. And there are certain players who might be better footballers with some condition on them. And for, for mine, it is a, a, a measure of maybe discipline rather than practical football application, you know, being applied practically to football. It's like Galloway, lose the weight, we'll measure you and we'll know that you're on the straight and narrow. I don't like it. Yeah, well, it's not like there aren't enough measures of uh, fitness and condition, is there? So, Correct. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure one, one less will make that much difference, but... Um, you know, I guess, well, we live in a new age and, you know, I mean, I'm sure when uh, AFL clubs initially scrapped the mantra of, um, you know, doing pre-season training uh, in a hundred degree heat without water, you know, um, I'm sure some people said at that time, oh, what are you talking about? It was good enough for us. But um, I think we just have to be guided by the the best advice of um, medical people and and importantly um, psychological advice so 
Uh, I, I don't see the issue. But anyway, uh, I'm sure it'll settle down soon enough. And um, some of the people who are seem most upset about it, i.e. certain media commentators, will move on to the next faux controversy they can salivate over. Um, all right, next bit of news, bit of contract news involving West Coast, and that is that the two oldest players on the West Coast list, uh, former skipper Shannon Hearn and Coleman medalist Josh Kennedy, both signing one-year deals to play on in 2022. Both those players, in fact, they're almost identical age at the moment, 34 and two months, uh, that pair. So we'll play on. Uh, into their 35th year. I guess the obvious issue here, finally, is the overall age of that West Coast list. I was having a look before. There are currently half a dozen players on the Eagles list who are older than 30. Um, But they're just at a tipping point now because there's another four players who will turn 30 during the course of next season. So at some point in the 2022 season, Um, the Eagles are going to have 10 players on that list older than 30. It's certainly uh, old in the context of a modern AFL side. Uh, Then again, Geelong, of course, uh, oldest of a lot these days and certainly hasn't impeded their performance. And look, Kennedy and Hearn still great value um, in more than spiritual terms. You know, Kennedy ended up with 41 goals this season, um, missed four games, still managed 41 goals. I think one behind Jack Darling and Shannon Hearn, still a really good and important player in that back line in his own right. Look, I'd guarantee you there's not a team playing against West Coast next season who would be happier with those players in the team than out. So when they're lining up, they provide a target in the case of Kennedy and a great shot at goal still. And of course, Hearn with that penetrating kicking off the back line is still a very serviceable player. You know, it's not impossible that they get a, a year contract. And at the end of the year, if they've had good seasons, they go around again. We've seen players play into their mid thirties with some effect, you know, just have a look at how well, Monday went last season for Crosstown Rivals Freo. So, yeah, they might have an, a list that profiles older, but it would have been a huge shock not to see those two go around again. Now, I think once you get to our age, you certainly cheer on the uh, contingent of plus 30s. <laughs> you do, don't you? Running around in the AFL. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, both those two were key players again in 2022. And just to finish off, and look, this happened late last week, but obviously after we recorded last week's podcast, and a sad story, that is the passing of South Australian football legend, Russell Liebert, uh, 72, uh, was diagnosed with leukaemia in December last year and sadly passed away. I think it was last Friday, but uh, a real torrent of tributes across the football world, not just from South Australia. Uh, it's a it's a real pity for Victorians that we only got to see him in the flesh uh, at VFL level for one season. That was 1979, of course, when he came across and played 25 games. Uh, every game that season for North Melbourne went home again. But just to give you a snapshot of how good this man was, 392 games for Port Adelaide, 25 for North Melbourne, 29 interstate games for South Australia, uh, four McGarry medals, 1971, 74, 76 and 80. He coached the Port Adelaide Magpies for five seasons. He coached Woodville for a couple of seasons. He coached South Australia in three games, he won uh, six best and fairest. He won the first Jack Odie medal in 1981 for best player on the ground in a grand final. Uh, captain of the Magpies for, uh, I think, nine seasons. Uh, member of the AFL, or sorry, Australian Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and obviously a member of the South Australian Football Hall of Fame. And as you know, Fanny, I am prone to watching quite a lot of Sandful and Waffle football on YouTube. I've even got some DVDs. So whilst I 
I did see him play in the flesh in a couple of state games and a couple of times to North. Um, but even just watching on video, uh, he was a superb footballer, uh, a ball magnet, a beautiful user of the ball as a midfielder. Um, just quite a distinctive running style, but uh, re- great uh, vision as a footballer. And in fact, one tiny little passage of play I saw tweeted in the aftermath really summed it up. And it was a game between Port Adelaide and Sturt at uh, Football Park. And Ebert is on his hands and knees on the boundary line fighting for possession. He wins the ball and still on his knee- knees, fires off a handball over his shoulder at least... 20, 25 metres to a teammate on the move who takes the ball without breaking stride and bangs the ball forward. Uh, I think someone asked the question, is this the greatest handball of all time? Well, it's right up there. He was an incredible player and the uh, also a, a really wonderful person. I, I was lucky enough to meet him once over in Adelaide, and uh, but the stories of his work both in the football world and community work and welfare work are also legendary. So just a universally admired figure. And um, I'm sure his family and friends and they're a great footballing family, the Eberts would be very uh, chuffed to see just uh, the regard in which he was held. Yeah, I remember him as a player, uh, only from that season 79, where we got to see him in the flesh a couple of times against our own teams. And, also, in state games, beautifully balanced, wasn't he? Sort of never knocked off his axis. And, gee, got a lot of the ball. He would have been an absolute plum pick in the modern game, wouldn't he? Given the role that the sentiment plays in football, when you consider, as you said, how well he used it and how often he got it, it would almost make him like your number one draft pick, that combination, wouldn't it? And, yeah, look, I mean, for those of us in Victoria who who didn't witness most of his career, uh, one of the most notable, uh, there was a really nice trivia put out by the AFL, actually, in which uh, Gil McLaughlin, who, of course, grew up in South Australia, was quoted at length. And uh, he just spoke so reverentially about being a, a young kid and watching but the footballer in action, uh, I think that carries a fair bit of weight too. So uh, condolences to the Ebert clan, but uh, a life well lived and uh, what an incredible legacy to have left. All right, that is enough football news this week. Uh, let's talk movies and music. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Vinyl and video time. We are down to number 18 in the countdown of our favourite top 20 movies and songs of all times. Created some interesting discussion so far. I reckon this week might create some particularly interesting discussion because they're... uh, Two pretty dramatically different choices in both movies and music. Let's start with the screen, Finey. And I'm going for my third comedy in a row. (laughs) I will get more serious. But coming in at number 18, well, I was absolutely obsessed with this comedy troupe when I was a youngster. And uh, having read back on a lot of the dialogue, I can understand why, because there's a lot of wordplay. There's a lot of good slapstick humour in their films. Uh, This is by some measure the earliest film on my list, goes all the way back to 1933. Which comedy troupe do you think I'm talking about, Finey? If we're going back to the 30s, it's... Are they going to be the Stooges or the Marx Brothers? And given that it's a feature-length movie, it'll be the Marx Brothers. Correct. Uh, indeed. I uh, had a book, actually, about the Marx Brothers, which I reckon I read at the age of about nine or ten, and I would actually memorise slabs of dialogue off by heart, and I had a pecking order of favourite Marx Brothers films, and uh, it was always uh, a race in two for my favourite. That was between A Night at the Opera, but I just gave the nod to this one, Duck Soup. 
And uh, the plot of Duck Soup is that Groucho, who always had interesting character names, he plays Rufus T. Firefly, who is appointed the leader of the small and financially struggling nation of Freedonia um, by the wealthy Mrs. Teasdale. Uh, she insists on him attaining that position for her to provide much-needed financial aid and uh, this is all whilst the evil scheming ambassador of neighbouring Sylvania is trying to uh, foment a revolution and uh, dig up dirt on Rufus T. Firefly. Uh, of course, that Groucho playing Rufus T. Firefly and his ever-present companions, Harpo and Chico playing Chicolini and Pinky, and then the rather odd fourth uh, member of the troupe and straight man, Zeppo Marks, of course, uh, Mrs. Teasdale, played by Margaret Dumont, who was a fixture in just about all these Marx Brothers films. But Duck Soup is my favourite. It's a particularly wacky plot. Uh, there's some particularly wacky dialogue in it. And uh, as a kid, I must have seen this film about a dozen times. I must admit, Fanny, I haven't seen it for a long, long time. But when I was thinking about my favourites, given the amount I watched this and uh, how well I knew it, uh, well, admittedly, decades ago, uh, I had to include it. Where do you stand on the Marx Brothers? I'm a big fan as well. I think maybe our vintage, where old enough to have been exposed to some Marx Brothers on the TV, quite a bit of it, which yeah. doesn't happen anymore, I don't think. <laughs> I haven't seen the Marx Brothers movie on TV for a while, but it was great. They were great fun, and you're right, it straddled both sort of spheres of comedy, great script and great physical comedy. So for a kid who doesn't laugh at, great physical comedy when it's funny and as you get a bit older and you understand the meaning of what's being said you start to really appreciate the witticisms i love margaret dumont the fall guy or fall girl in so many movies and always great any scene with with harpo with harpo with groucho marx and margaret dumont is just it's still a classic and i'm glad you picked duck soup made my top 50 movies of all time. I had a similar close call with A Night at the Opera, so we are very much on the same page. I love Night at the Opera. I think that's it's got a great ending, but you're right, for just overall true Marx Brothers, I think it was the last one they made at Paramount, which were, was where they made all their great movies. So it was a signing off in the best possible fashion at the height of their powers, and I think it's a great movie. That, that is right. It was their last film for Paramount. And I wasn't aware of this till I was reading up on the history of it, but uh, not uh, a, a great commercial success, although critically acclaimed. I was also trying to remember uh, that, well, what, what is the most memorable line from the film? And there's, of course, uh, Rufus T. Fireflies, go and never darken my towels again. Uh, there's the, I could dance with you till the cows come home. On second thought, I'd rather dance with the cows till you came home. Uh, what else? There's the uh, uh, clear, huh, why a four-year-old child could understand this report. Run out and find me a four-year-old child. <laughs> I can't make head or tail out of it. <laughs> and, of course, Chico's staple, the, uh, the uh, misunderstood words, as in, what about the taxes? Texas, I've got an uncle who lives in Texas. No, taxes, dollars. Yeah, that's where he lives, Dallas, Texas, <laughs> etc. cetera. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you're too young to have seen much of the Marx Brothers on TV or uh, you, you haven't seen this particular movie, check it out. Uh, I guarantee you'll get a great laugh out of it, uh, which is something I'm tipping you won't get much out of with your number 18 pick in your favourite movie list. Fine, tell us about it. No, you're right, Rowan. I can't think of a light-hearted moment in this movie. Nevertheless, highly acclaimed, if not now a little controversial. And at number 18 for me is The Deer Hunter, 1978 movie directed and co-written by Michael Cimino. It starred, well, it had a really brilliant cast and a cast that was to become even more famous when you consider they were early acting roles for Robert De Niro, 
who played Michael, Meryl Streep, his love interest, his partner, uh, Linda, even though she doesn't feature prominently in the movie, what she does do is brilliant. And Christopher Walken as Nick in the movie as well. I mean, these are... I think, hang on, sorry to interrupt. I think this was, wasn't this John Cazaley's final film role as well, I think? Well, and John Cazaley also playing one of the friends in this tight-knit community of Clareton, Pennsylvania, a real typical steel town, a worker's town, where the predominant force in that town is patriotism, even though they are sort of second, third generation, maybe Americans, they're all, they're all of the Russian Orthodox Church, fiercely patriotic, and it's set... It's a really a movie in three parts. It's the part prior to going to Vietnam, where part of their number, uh, Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken, Michael Nick, and another... Uh, drafted and head to Vietnam and it's their time just before going. Then we go to Vietnam where it is incredibly powerful scenes, most famously, and this is now where the controversy lies, much of the messaging in this movie surrounds the playing of Russian roulette. And historically there's no evidence that POWs were ever forced to play Russian roulette and now, looking back at the movie, the sort of stereotypical cruelty of an American foe in war has come under some criticism. But maybe that's looking back and not really getting the main message from this movie, because we get this in the third part, the return of the soldier, how he has missed what is normal life in America and from Vietnam, the return of the soldier wasn't heralded like the returns of soldiers in the Second World War in particular and to an extent in the First World War in America. They were not celebrated. And uh, for one of their number, and I won't go too deep into the movie for those who haven't seen it, uh, they were never able to leave Vietnam mentally or in the end physically. So it really speaks of the horrors of war and to get too het up in maybe looking back and saying that this was another pro-American movie that casts American foes in war as being criminal and uncivilised maybe misses the point a bit because it's an anti-war movie. Yeah, I, I saw this uh, not when it came out, but I did see it a long time ago, certainly more than 30 years ago, um, and I, I liked it. My memory is at the time... It, it was controversial even when it came out. I remember it really polarising people. As you know, my father was a film critic, so um, we discussed it a lot. I don't think he was a big fan. It also came out around the same time as Apocalypse Now, and um, I, I, I seem to remember a lot of people sort of contrasting the two movies and the deer hunter suffering uh, critically by comparison. But, you know, obviously a very successful movie and... And um, and and very fated. Um, Jesus, it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. I oh, did it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, gee, that's some Hollywood was uh, really at the peak of its powers in the seventies. I reckon so many of my favourite films are, are from that era. But uh, the Vietnam film genre certainly very um, fruitful over the years. As you say, fantastic cast. John Savage, uh, the other. Uh, lead in that film as well. And uh, I think you say The Deer Hunter, and as, as you point out, everyone immediately thinks of the uh, the Russian roulette scenes, don't they? Which um, I know some people have said uh, uh, they still are haunted by all these years later. But, um, yeah, certainly a film worth seeing, and uh, I know you rate it very highly, your number 18 film of all time. All right, let's move on to music. Uh, and this might happen a bit, but so far this is, uh, musically speaking, I think the most dramatic contrast we've had. Uh, my number 18 is one of my very, very favourite Australian bands. 
Uh, it is by the Mark of Cain uh, cult band, if you like, from South Australia. Very tight, um, uh, riffy guitar, crunching guitar sort of sound. Um, three-piece band, the Scott Brothers, and, uh, well, a variety of drummers over the years. But in this um, version of the band, John Stania, also drummer with American hardcore band Helmet, is part of the lineup. This is from their 2001 album, This Is This, the opening track. And I tell you what, you want, you like your rock song, song starting uh, in a fairly meaty fashion. You won't find many more meatier starts or finishes to a song than this. This is Familiar Territory by The Mark of Cain. Let's have a quick listen. How's that for a bit of power, Fighty? Crunching, riff-driven, Oz Rock at its finest. What do you think of it? All right. I'll tell you honestly what I thought of it because it's the first time I have heard that particular song. I thought it was really going places before the vocals came in. It was really tight, really hard. I think the vocals are a bit meat and potatoes. But that, I agree, that is a really tight, hard-rocking, well, well put-together ensemble. Maybe I just found lyrically it was pretty basic. I mean, when I say lyrically, I'm talking about the actual where the, where the track travelled music-wise during the lyrics wasn't anything special for me. So I was... I was Really impressed, not unimpressed by them in total, but that could have been any world-class band for me prior to the vocals. Yeah, he doesn't. John Scott is the frontman and vocalist. He doesn't sing so much as uh, talk, I think, but that's sort yeah. of part of the appeal for me. Um, they, are an, they are one of the most amazing bands live I've ever seen. I never fail to miss... Uh, when they are touring, and they don't do that all that often. But they've uh, been around a long time now, well over 30 years, um, one of Adelaide's finest, uh, the Mark of Cain. That is familiar territory. All right, Fidey, your number 18 song. All right, this is something pretty unusual. I don't know whether many people have heard of Scroobius Pip. Probably not. I certainly hadn't. His best-known work was with a DJ called Dan Lassac called Thou Shalt Kill, worth listening to. Scroobius Pip is actually David Peter Mead. And until five years ago, he was a spoken word poet, hip-hop artist and rap, and rap singer. He's a, a white Englishman. But he's, I like his music because the lyrics are really clever at times. And this is a very unusual track. It's called The Struggle, released in 2011. And, you know, I've never sort of thought that I could give away, a, you know, in a movie you don't want to give away the ending. And I guess in a way if I explain what this song is about, I'm giving away half the fun of listening to it. So have a listen to this excerpt and see if you can pick up on where this whole thing's going. It's an addiction and I ain't proud of it but the power that you feel there's no cloud in it. The fear before the facts as they know something's wrong. Their vain attempts to scream their muffled swan song the struggle the shock in their eyes my grip around their throat as all their hope dies. That sudden loss of breath there is no thrill equal my name is Johnny Depp and I kill people. Fear, scream, struggle, 
Yes. Well, that's different. Um, what's Johnny Depp got to do with anything funny? I, I did pick up that reference. All right. This song is entirely about a person who goes about his business. He says he's a good family man, doesn't cheat on his wife, but he has his vices, he has his addictions, and his addiction is killing people. And he gets away with it because nobody could believe that he kills people. But he can do it because he's Johnny Depp. So it's a song that claims, not claims, it has fun with the concept of, well, when you've got everything like Johnny Depp does, money, fame, fortune, what can stimulate you? And in this case, it's being a serial killer. Well, it's, uh, yeah, well, it sounds about your neck of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've got to say, I, I struggled with this one because I, I, uh, I, the lyrics interested me, but not overly. And musically, I think music's always the main driver for me rather than the lyrics. Yeah, and, this isn't super musical. No. So uh, I, I know where you're coming from, but uh, Scroobius Pip, well, at least I can say I've now heard his work. But there you go. There's two pretty different sounding songs for you. Our number 18 top songs and movies on to number 17 this week. Uh, these lists are going to go in all sorts of directions, I feel, which is good for discussion. So tell us what you think when you're having a listen uh, on the comments on either website or wherever you uh, uh, choose to leave a comment on the podcast. All right, that's it for vinyl and video this week. But the nostalgia, the memories, they don't end there because it's time for some great football flashbacks. Fantastic footy flashbacks. All right, here's one for uh, South Australian fans in particular, but just lovers of classic football. you got to say, Finey, that since Port Adelaide entered the competition in 1997, the uh, biannual, is that two a year? I think so. Uh, showdown against Adelaide has been an absolute highlight of the home and away season calendar. Great rivalry between these two. Uh, very evenly contested. There's been some absolute classics all the way through. And uh, I don't know why this one uh, popped up in my head, maybe because of the circumstances in which I watched it. In fact, I watched this game um, sitting in a hotel room in Hong Kong, believe it or not. And uh, it was pretty good. Uh, it was on the TV. I didn't have to stream or anything. It was on one of their TV stations and uh, just sat back and enjoyed in the early afternoon Hong Kong time a absolute epic between the Crows and the Power. Uh, another nail-biter and amazing twisting and turning of the narrative in the last few minutes. In fact, coming up to the 25-minute mark of this game, Port Adelaide led by 17 points. That was reduced to... 11 points after a goal to Eddie Betts. Just a couple of minutes still left on the clock, but a lot can happen in a couple of minutes. And uh, let's find out now exactly what happened. Can he be big in this moment? Such a beautiful long kick. Crowd trying to get into his head. One thing this year he's doing well is kicking goals. Kicking big goals just like that. She's on now. Port might have thought they had the job done. They better think again. Centre bounce. Right at Greenwood. Out of the middle. All of a sudden, it's all going Adelaide's way. Free kick. Big call by the umpire. The free kick. Goes to Wingard. There was a bloke who just sat back in the hole. Gutsy effort. Gee, that's a big kick. And the man in front being paid. Interesting decision by Wingard. Dangerous kick, wasn't it? Kraut inserts them again. Oh, oh we know this man can do it. He's done it before, McGovern. Well, the kick from Wingard, Jared, 
just really didn't understand the, the state of the game. Yeah, fair enough, he saw Power Pepper streaming forward, but he had more control. He did. Let's have a look at this kick, though. Wow. Well, he's done it before to draw a game. Can he do it to win it? Still 50 seconds on the clock to give Adelaide back the lead. Oh. <laughs> he has stamped that down. Undaunted. The Adelaide Crows have come from absolutely nowhere to hit the front. And they are rattled, Port Adelaide. Stunning. And Mitch McGovern. Well, the, the mistakes were plenty there. This needed to be spoiled. And then McGovern just had the channel open up for him. Strong hands. He's always been a brilliant kick. But under pressure, he got the job done. Celebrate. Celebrate hard. What a great kick. So Adelaide have sent all their forwards essentially behind the ball. Port Adelaide have got a, a started run-up. They've got five off the back of the square charging in. And we'll start again. But you can see they've got Jenkins and... Taylor Walker, the only two forwards starting off the front of the line. Adelaide with Talia and everyone off the bat. 38 seconds and it goes Adelaide's way, but they're ready. Howard pumps it in. They've got the out oh. number. They all crash down. Flashpoint. Stevie Modlock. What a time! Oh. Just one of the great centre clearances uh, of the year. As a long kick to the hot spot, I think McGovern's got himself injured uh, with that collision. But then this man being brought to the club, and this was his moment, and he delivered, Pav. He certainly did. Have a look at Ken Hinkley. He loved it. <laughs> that's some type of reaction. Here's the big clash. Oh, that's unbelievable courage from all players in that incident. McGovern's still out there. He's got up. Look at that. He's kicked the, what you thought was the match-winning goal, then goes back with the flight. Now he has to get back into battle with 21 seconds to go. Is there another twist to come? Surely not. 21 seconds. Back in the middle we go. On battle-weary legs, the Crows have got to get it forward. But Wines, they're saying no way. Polak, Robbie Gray, he was the hero in the third. He pumps it forward as close to goal as you can. Flashpoint at half forward. The Crows are going to find something. They can't. Seizman on the charge. The siren sounds. The sweet siren for Port Adelaide. Showdown 44 is over. And what a game it was. I mean, those games uh, do not go to script at all, do they? And that was an absolute ripping finish. My... One of my sort of um, targets, Mitch McGovern kicked an important goal in that. That might have been his last act of relevance for the Adelaide Football Club, but it was a. They almost stole the game, really, didn't they? Well, it would have been uh, robbery. Um, uh, Port, you know, lead most of this game, but uh, incredible burst from them. But then. How's that response? Great goal from Motwop on the run. Sort of uh, not off balance, but not really on his preferred foot at the time. a little bit like the goal uh, Clayton Oliver kicked in that dramatic third quarter of the grand final this year, actually. Um, but uh, frenzied scenes and Kenny Hinckley in the Port Adelaide coaches box. Boy, did he go off his chops when they won that unusual display <laughs> of raw emotion from him. Um, yeah, we've seen some great showdowns, but uh, that would certainly be in my uh, top handful. I think, of course, the head-to-head -head record between these two is always uh, close. Currently standing uh, Port Adelaide's way 26-24 after 50 showdowns. So it is no doubt one of the great rivalries in the AFL, even if you are not a South Australian. Always fantastic viewing. All right, that's my flashback for this week. What do you got for us, Fanny? Well, let's go back a little bit further. 2002, round eight, 
and Melbourne inside the top eight headed to Fremantle or to Subiaco to take on Fremantle. At that stage, uh, after seven rounds, Melbourne had five wins, Freo only three. But this was to be a magnificent finish. Tight game most of the evening. It was an evening game, certainly as we watched it back here in Melbourne, 5.40 start over there in Perth. And it was a nail-biting finish. I don't want to give away the ending because when we picked the play up, Melbourne lead by a point and they're heading back into attack. So let's pick it up with about a minute and a half of actual play to go. Just need to slow the game down here, Melbourne. Well, they probably don't realise what time there is to go, but they just need to slow it down. It hasn't been the longest of quarters, though, so Fremantle would, would, would still back themselves here. One minute remaining. Possession all important. Down the line. Down the line. Into the space. Getting a lead now from Robertson. It's a long one, but if the kick is right, you'll get it. It's too long. Chance now. Hazelby. Got to keep it in. Does, does so, but McDonald steals it. Melbourne want to get a ball up or a boundary throw in. Miller chasing. Fremantle still have it. Was that 15? No. Seagat quick handball. They've coughed it up. The Demons now. Great pressure from Fremantle. Haynes in there. Williams. He's given it up. Enormous pressure in the dying minutes of this game at Subiaco. 30 seconds to go. Troy Cook. He's got it over the top. Brown. He's just got to pick it up. 80 metres out. He needs a mark inside 50. Pavlich. Couldn't get it. Still at ground level. Anybody's ball game. Crowd, he's kicked seven. Farmer, he's kicked a couple of magic goals. Funk, tackle, Brown, pokes it forward. Crowd for his eighth. No, Ellis gets back. Dying seconds. Can Farmer do it? In the back. In the back. Oh, this is fairy tale stuff. Fairy tale stuff, Manny. Jeff Farmer can win the game for Fremantle. One point the margin. Jeff Farmer. Score. Yeah, but he has. Oh, he'll score. He doesn't want to just score. There's a fair Tim bit of pressure. There's a he fair bit of pressure. Mate, he'll kick the goal. He will kick the goal. We've seen. It is the fairy tale. He will kick the goal and win the game for Fremantle. You mentioned at the start, Ken, that the Fremantle supporters wanted to see the wizard. Yeah. They've seen him a couple of times tonight. Farmer from reverse angle to win the game. Uh, that is a good choice. I'd, I'd completely forgotten this game. What an amazing finish. Jeff Farmer, the whiz, of course, his first season uh, going back to WA and playing against his old side for the first time. Some uh, nice moments there between him and Travis Johnson after the, the finish of this game. But, uh, wow, Bob's up against his old team, kicks the final two goals of the game. A couple of things with this, Finey. That goal that brought the difference back to only a point. I'm not sure that was actually a goal. Yeah, uh, I had a good look at it. Jeez, if it got inside the post, it <laughs> just got inside the post. I reckon that was a little bit dubious. Did you think that was a little bit doubtful? Might not have stood the current test of uh, the third umpire, as they say. Well, it's certainly, we certainly would have been waiting the full 40 seconds, I suspect. The other thing was Melbourne. Oh, they still could have hung on to the game. That uh, bit of play just before that final Fremantle attack where they, I think, fumbled the ball about three times when all they had to do was retain possession. I think Brad Miller, it might have been, tried something, tried to bust a tackle when he just had to give off a handball. And then I think Luke Williams fumbled. And then that kick inside from Trent Crowe, who'd kicked seven goals, Trent Crowe, in that game. And it was his first season uh, back at uh, Fremantle as well. So, uh, and then of course the goal after the siren. Um, been involved in some drama over the years, Frio, and uh, that that was up there with the best of them. Great game. And yeah, I mean, Dar- Darren Cowell had a chance, and it was just they really they really sort of blew it. I'll tell you one thing about that finish. When you consider that it was a kick after the siren off a free kick. 
and that there was not much hullabaloo about it, you can be sure that David Neitz definitely got into the back of his former teammate. No protest there. That was a clear free, wasn't it? That was a shocker, wasn't it? What was he thinking? God, it just went in all guns blazing. Yeah, no, absolutely in the back every day of the week. It wasn't the greatest uh, kick of all time either from uh, the Wizards. Sort of wobbled through rather than really yeah, yep. spun beautifully. But uh, it uh, did the job and Fremantle got the points. Um, yeah, fantastic stuff there. Really, really exciting finish and uh, interesting Commentary too there uh, with Fox Footy covering that game. I think Maddie Campbell doing the call. Yep. I think that was might have been Ken Judge doing special comments. I, I couldn't remember him being on Fox Footy, but it was they certainly said Ken. I've got a feeling that might have been well, yeah, Ken Judge, like Ken Judge, the late Ken Judge. So there you go. There's footy flashbacks for this week. Couple of nail biters there. Uh, a showdown and a game between Frio and Melbourne. All right, one part left of this program to finish off, and we all know what it is. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, let's go. I've been watching uh, the political sphere keenly this week, Finey, and uh, certain events lead one to believe that a federal election may not be too far away, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Can you count me in, please? I can. Three, two, one, let rip. I'm pissed off with the media, Finey. Yep, I'm going there again. What is it this time? Well, it could be any number of things, really, but specifically this week, it's TV Network's coverage of Scott Morrison's little jaunt through the shops of Malvern the other day. How do you know there's an election in the wind? Well, when the Prime Minister for New South Wales suddenly deigns to make a trip south of the Murray to see Melbourne with his own eyes. And how do you know we're going to be served up the same sort of trite passed off as political coverage on TV? When there's an army of camera crews in tow, dutifully recording without comment every pathetic and transparently insincere PR stunt the PM's less than visionary media team can come up with. So we get all the usual crappy footage we've come to associate with political coverage over the last 30 years. Morrison posing for selfies with people on Glenferry Road. Morrison rolling gnocchi in an Italian restaurant. And Morrison, wait for it, even getting a haircut. Groundbreaking stuff. I mean, who would have thought politicians actually needed to get their locks trimmed like the rest of us? Whenever I see this sort of crap now, Fanny, I can't help but wonder if the PM's Media Brains Trust, and I use the term loosely, actually thinks that sort of footage is going to win a single vote. And if, heaven forbid, it does, what does that say about the sort of basis on which people are deciding who determines the future of this country? I mean, forget coherent policy, inspiring vision for our future, planning on issues like climate, welfare, health and education. Nope. It's a bloke who sits in a barber's chair and gets a regulation short back and sides who I'm going to entrust with my vote. All I could think as I watched on in horror was where was Sweeney Todd when you needed him? This is about the sort of level we've come to expect from Morrison and co over the last few years, of course. No real interest in policy, no interest in investing in a safe future for our descendants, no interest in anything really except clinging on to power. But it's not like our media isn't aware that this is the modus operandi. It's one thing to catch Morrison out when he obfuscates or just plain tells porkies, and a handful of journos have at least attempted not to let him get away with it, despite the difficulty of doing so in a controlled environment where he can just refuse to accept the premise of that question or trot out some other gibberish before redirecting the questioning to elsewhere. Surely when it comes down to these childish photo ops, though, the media can make a considered choice not to play an active role in helping spread the puerile distractions and trivialising of the Prime Minister's role. But nope, there they were again, recording and tweeting faithfully every snip of the barber's scissors, every roll of the pasta, just like every pretend building of a chicken coop or pretend driving of a tank or Air Force jet before that. A few of us media types on Twitter got a little testy about this, following which we were scornfully reproached by a former TV news producer about piling on a young reporter just doing a job. Well, mate, if tweeting that sort of crap is a journalistic job, I'm an equine taxidermist. This guy insisted that if the reporter hadn't tweeted about it, none of us would have been any the wiser about such shallow stunts. 
Better still, he said, we are out of line as the accompanying story on the news hadn't mentioned the haircut. Never mind that the graphic behind the story was chock full of those stupid images and trivialising any serious commentary about the government's strategy on electric vehicles and fuel. Yes, mate, what a terrific smackdown that was of another cynical, shallow bit of politicking. I'm pretty sure I'm far from the only person who's had a gutful of this sort of stuff. At what point do you think TV news networks might consider a story important enough to give prominence to, even without shock horror, sexy footage? And at what point will a journalist sent to cover the literal circus have enough self-respect to say, nope, shoot your own cutesy videos, Prime Minister, cut the crud, and tell us why you're now enthusiastically championing an initiative you were ridiculing the opposition about two years ago? What, you don't accept the premise of the question? Well, perhaps we don't accept the premise that you're anything like capable of taking this country to somewhere a little more idealistic than the dross you're currently serving up. And that goes to the people filming your rubbish as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. So not into politicians kissing babies, Ro? Oh, don't, aren't you sick of it? I mean, like, seriously, I'd say the same thing about an ALP poly doing it. I'm so yeah. sick of it. Oh, yeah, I, I, I completely, I, I wouldn't, if it appeared on my TV screen, I'd be that quick to the remote control, I'd look like, one of those Westerners like Wide Earp. I would not watch a second of it because it's all the same, isn't it? But it's two things. One, one, why do they do it? How do they possibly think that can win votes? And and two, why do the media networks, particularly TV, go along with it? Just tell them to get stuffed. No, we'll do a press conference with you where we can actually throw some serious questions at you. My Jerry manages to back out of most of them as well. Uh, anyway, I'm just absolutely over it, and the media is complicit in it. Stop it, please. <laughs> stop it. All right, your turn. Three, two, one, rant. I've got to admit, I am nowhere near as smart as I thought I was or even used to be. Now, it's not that I don't know things nowadays. I just completely don't understand them. I always used to believe that with enough research and effort, I could understand most things that I put my mind to. But not anymore. I've read about certain things. I've listened to the experts on certain matters, and I know absolutely nothing about them and seem to be incapable of absorbing any information. Let's take an example. Cryptocurrency. What on earth is it? Apparently, it's a collection of binary data designed to work as a medium of exchange. Blah, blah, ahem, who did the what to the whom? Computerised databasing using methodology of cryptology. <clears throat> what? Blockchains? Yes. Timestamping? Said whom? Mining? Mining for blockchain? Crypto mining? Miners pools? Resources? The dark net? Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Litecoin, Peercoin. What? I have no idea and, in fact, know less about it now than when I started trying to learn something about it. I used to know a bit about currency. I used to know the A to Zs of currency, Rowan, from the Australian dollar to the Zloty. But I can't understand the first thing about cryptocurrencies, and I've tried. And it gets worse. Do you know sporting collectibles are now, in the new form, wait for it, non-fungible assets. So forget the footy cards and the chewing gum we used to get as kids or the signed footy or jumper. No, now you can purchase a moment in time in sporting history. I don't know who you buy it from and I don't know exactly who you buy it of, but once again, it's something to do with the blockchain. So it has a crypto element to it. You can buy Jezza's mark. I don't know if you own Jezza or the mark or the moment or Heath Shaw's smother. I mean, can you get any moment in time in football? Can I get one of Grant Laurie's kick-ins from 1990 in his one year at St Kilda? They were good. He could kick the ball in all right. Or maybe I could buy Glenn Middlemister's last ever goal. It was in 1984 in his last game against Richmond. We got thrashed. He was hopeless, but I could own the goal. 
What could I do with it? Boast about it? Hardly. Keep it to myself? Probably. Ring Glenn Middlemiss up and say, you know that last guy you kicked in footy? I own it. Doesn't make any sense. What do I do with it? Why has it got a value? No idea. Rowan, I don't know much about global warming. I don't know the difference between vaccines. In fact, the more I seem to know nowadays, the less I understand. I'm becoming stupid by default. Let's be honest, I don't know much about footy tipping. You've proved that over the last few years. I guess all I can do is wait for dementia and then I'll have an excuse. What do you mean, wait for dementia? Yeah, well, I'm telling you, I just don't understand things anymore. No, I'm absolutely with you. I, when you started talking about crypto, the first thing that popped into my head, there was a pretty sure it was a North Melbourne game during the year where they won and they interviewed a couple of North players afterwards. And uh, I think it was Jai Simpkin, apologies if it wasn't, but he started talking about how a few of them had bought shares in a crypto horse and we're about to see it run in a crypto race. <laughs> and the, I think the hosts were as mystified as you and I are by that. Yeah, I've got no idea. I'll tell you this too, Fidey. I know on Twitter, and I'm sure people will back me up on this, if ever you check your notifications and you see replies from anyone talking about either cryptocurrency or have it possessing an avatar which has an Aussie flag on it, or a picture of a car or a horse, look out. You're not about to be engaging in deep intellectual conversation. <laughs> uh, no, very good rant. I, and I relate entirely, and I'm sure a lot of our audience does too. Uh, all right. Uh, that is it for this week. Thanks to your company. I'll tell you what, Fanny, uh, I might just head down to a certain place in Albert Park get one of the best hamburgers in town and pay for it, not in cryptocurrency, but with real good old-fashioned dollar bills. Where would I be sense, going? It makes sense, doesn't it? It, it does. makes sense. Buy a burger, enjoy a burger. Go to 144 Bridport Street, Andrew's Hamburgers, eat the burger, have the burger, experience the burger. Maybe you could sell that experience later on. But believe you me, you'll be far better off just enjoying it yourself 144 Bridport Street Albert Park where the burgers are real bite them taste them enjoy them and please uh we're public uh public health uh statement here when you go down there to buy a burger please pay the two Gregs with real genuine currency not crypto currency they won't be happy and neither will we for besmirching theirs and our good name Thanks here, company. Uh, we'll be back again next week with, uh, what are we up to? Number 17 in our favourite movies and songs. We'll have some great footy flashbacks, plenty of footy news, and a couple of rants for you. Till then, all the very best to you.